Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, the coronavirus outbreak spreads and the World Health Organization now declares a global health emergency as the number of Canadians asking to be evacuated from China swells to nearly 200. We'll have the latest on the government's efforts to bring them home. The federal government is pushing ahead with a ban on single-use plastics with legislation on the way. And the federal government faces a fast-approaching deadline to expand the rules for medically-assisted death. Today, it's being urged to allow the end-of-life option for some Canadians with mental disorders. I'll speak with the author of a new report. The new NAFTA, coronavirus and the Conservative leadership race, the party commentators, coming up a little later. But we'll begin the program again tonight with the latest developments in the new coronavirus outbreak and how Canada is responding to it. The World Health Organization today declared the outbreak a public health emergency, a global health emergency that comes with recommendations to all countries to take steps to prevent the cross-border spread of the coronavirus. The vast majority of cases outside China have a travel history to Wuhan or contact with someone with a travel history to Wuhan. We don't know what sort of damage this virus could do if it were to spread in a country with a weaker health system. We must act now to help countries prepare for that possibility. For all of these reasons, I'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern over the global outbreak of novel coronavirus. The main reason for this declaration is not because of what is happening in China, but because of what is happening in other countries. Our greatest concern is the potential for the virus to spread to countries with weaker health systems and which are ill-prepared to deal with it. There are now more than 8,000 confirmed cases of the coronavirus and some 170 deaths. The virus has now spread to 17 countries. There remain three confirmed cases in this country. Airlines around the world, including Air Canada, have suspended flights to China. The Canadian government is still trying to get approval to get an airplane into China, where 196 Canadians have said they want and need the government's help getting home to this country. This afternoon, Canada's Minister of Health spoke with reporters following the WHO emergency declaration. Well, first of all, let me say that there's no indication actually yet that any of the people that have asked for help to return to Canada have coronavirus, so that's good news. Um, but there has been uh, some experience of our counterparts that, are, that have repatriated uh, their citizens that China uh, is not allowing people with the coronavirus to leave. Uh, we suspect for a couple reasons. One, uh, people might be too ill to travel. 
but two, uh, we are working obviously very diligently together as a global community to prevent the spread of disease. And the new designation around uh, that the WHO has adopted, what, what are the implications of that? So fortunately, uh, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Tam, who I think all of you have spoken with, to uh, be our Chief Public Health Officer of Canada. And she is also an expert advisor at the World Health Organization. And so of course has been on the committee uh, that has been st stood up for, for coronavirus since early days. Uh, we are fully in line with the recommendations of the World Health Organization as it stands. And the recommendations really uh, speak to the need to act more globally to protect uh, the health of all citizens of the world by supporting weaker countries, countries that maybe don't have the same kind of coordination that we have in Canada, the same kind of public health systems or the same kind of resources. So you, say say low, low, you mentioned the people that might be um, told to remain in China if they are already ill. Would that um, decision be acceptable to the government of Canada? Would you accept to see China refuse them to leave? And my second question is this. Um, WHO emergency declaration, what does that mean concretely here? Does mm -hmm. it mean that anything is changing? So in, in terms of the conversation with the Chinese government, that is a continued conversation. Of course, we're going to put into place measures to protect Canadians who are in China, in the region, uh, regardless of their situation. And uh, that will be different for different needs. I mean, some people have not, uh, don't want to leave, but they need other kinds of supports and services. And so we'll work on a case-by-case -case basis with the Chinese government and with the Canadians that are in the region to support them in, in the best way possible. In terms of the World Health Organization's declaration of, a, of a, a, an emergency, a global emergency, public health emergency. What that means is that uh, really in terms of Canada, we are actually up to date with the recommendations of the World Health Organization. Um, I think there's an implication that we need uh, stronger countries need to support the weaker countries in the world to prevent the further transmission of the illness uh, in a global way. And so that's very important for the health of all of our citizens. Are we going to do that? Are we going to support smaller countries? Well, absolutely, through, and we are already. So as I said, we are already in, uh, you know, in agreement with the recommendations and I would say compliance, not that there's any uh, you know, enforcement of these recommendations, but certainly uh, on, on the same track of the recommendations. And what I mean by that is we have international researchers, for example, working on the, on, on the, the, uh, the creation of a vaccine. We have contributed in terms of testing and assessment in our national lab uh, to, to provide additional information on the virus and, and the properties of the virus. And we continue to, continue to co contribute at the World Health Organization through the contributions of Dr. Tam. So we'll uh, continue to assess what kinds of supports need to be in place and we'll assess as, as well. You, you, you told us all week that the risk is low to Canadians. I mean, now with this global <coughs> health emergency, does that change at all? It does not change at all for Canadians. No, the risk remains low. Uh, obviously, uh, it is uh, low because partly uh, travel to and from the re affected region and from China is becoming more difficult. And of course, we have a very sophisticated system here in Canada, which has been noted, by the way, uh, by the World Health Organization as one that's extremely responsive and able to not only support people that may be uh, under investigation for having the, the virus, but who are ill. And so... You're not changing anything at airports? Not like the recommendations don't indicate that we should, in fact. So we are fully in line with the recommendations, even the new recommendations of the World Health Organization. Why can't you tell Canadians now are coming back? Do you have a number? We had 196 before. How many now do you have that want to come back? 
I will have to get the number to you. I numbers change all the time, and I'm, I don't have an exact. Why number. can't you tell Canadians when the plane will be yeah. going and when these people will be coming back? Because we don't have the information yet, so I'm not going to stand here and give Canadians in mis uh, misinformation. Why don't you have the information? Because uh, help us understand why you don't have that information. Because we are flying a non-commercial flight into a new country that is under quarantine, that has some very strict protocols about where planes can land and what the protocols might be, and so that requires negotiations with the Chinese government, which Global Affairs Canada is conducting right now. If, if the, the patients, when they come back, or the people when they come back, 196. What level of quarantine or isolation might they be on? So, as I said, uh, sick patients, uh, we have been isolating and we would continue to do that. If any patients were exhibiting symptoms of uh, being ill, uh, they would be isolated uh, until we could determine that, in fact, that they were they were free of the coronavirus. So would they in term isolated or quarantine, because you said there was a distinction. There is a distinction. Uh, you're absolutely right. Isolation is what happens when you are ill, and it is primarily, uh, in actually entirely, to prevent the spread of the disease to other people. We know the properties of this virus. Mate, uh, right now, mate now, right now, that's how much I'm learning French. <laughs> mate now, um, right now, the properties of the virus is that it is spread by, by droplet. And so what we are trying to do, uh, what the public health system is trying to do and, and health professionals are trying to do when they isolate people is to prevent those droplets from affecting other people. That's the purpose of isolation. Quarantine is another process whereby people who are asymptomatic are separated uh, to determine whether or not they will develop the symptoms. And as of now, there is no evidence that this disease is spread without the symptoms. It's really important to remember that. And I'll say this because, in fact, by spreading misinformation and, and, and jumping the gun in terms of how the disease spreads, it's creating quite a bit of fear, especially in, within the Chinese-Canadian community. Well, has the government's response now become more complicated with the uh, WHO designation of a global emergency on this coronavirus outbreak? And should that change any of the uh, protective measures the Canadian government has been taking? And what about those Canadians that want to be evacuated from China? From the foyer of the House of Commons tonight, I'm joined by Liberal MP Rob Oliphant, the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Yeah. Stephanie Cousy is the critic for Families and Social Development for the official opposition Conservatives. And Daniel Blakey is the critic for Export Promotion and International Trade for the NDP. Good to see you all. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. Uh, we've heard at length here from Patty Haidu, the Minister of Health. So let me start with you, Stephanie Cousy. Um, about the government's handling of this coronavirus outbreak and these reports that China might be reluctant to let anyone leave China who may be showing signs of the virus. How concerned are you that those 200 Canadians who are in China and want to be airlifted home might not be allowed to leave? Well, Peter, I'm certainly very concerned. Uh, of course, I'm a former consul myself with Foreign Affairs Canada. Uh, so I've been through the drill of the preparation before, as well as the evacuation before. Um, but our fears are certainly not quelled after a question period today when the government was unable to answer uh, any logistic at all. What we simply got were simply blanket statements regarding concern for the uh, safety of Canadians, both in China as well as Canada. But we did not receive a single detail uh, as to how this entire evacuation process is being handled uh, for Canadians in China or uh, how it will be, will be handled once the Canadians get here. Well, the government makes the case that, look, it's, it's a complicated thing. There's Chinese protocol. It is China. It is a coronavirus outbreak. There's lots of sort of challenges in trying to get this evacuation to take place. Um, you're, you're, 
what more do you want to hear from the government other than we're trying to get it figured out? Well, Peter, I can tell you as a former consul, we had to write country strategies. We had to write country strategies that included responses to potential uh, crises in the countries in which we resided, and that included plans for pandemics. So this is something that the government should have been responsible for administrating, for pulling that out of the drawer, putting it into a place you can't control. We can't control the actions of the Chinese government, but we can control the response as Canadians, as diplomats as well in, in China. And we have yet to see um, any logistics, any specifics as to what uh, the government has instructed our Canadian counterparts to do okay. in China to address this. Mr. Blakey, we still have no timeline from the government on when those Canadians will be evacuated. What concerns uh, do you have about the response? Sure. Well, I'm going to start by saying that I think, you know, the uh, Canada was strong out of the gate in terms of having a, a response that made sense uh, several days ago. But the situation has been developing very quickly. And I think we are beginning to get concerned that, uh, that, that the government response is not keeping pace with uh, events. So what we'd like to hear is uh, some more details of a plan. We don't want to be alarmist, but we also know that the best way to prevent people from feeling overly fearful or alarmed is, uh, is to know that their government has a plan in place. We're seeing other governments getting planes on the ground in China. Um, there's different approaches be being taken. Some are quarantining for certain periods, uh, some not, some on that end, some on this end. Okay. What we want to know is what is the government's plan and particularly when are they planning to let people know? So we'd like we'd like to hear a plan tomorrow uh, in terms of uh, some concrete details as to how the government's going to handle it. All right, Mr. Oliphant, uh, good of you. You're with us for a, for a second night in a row here on the program to help walk us through some of these uh, challenges facing the government. So can you shed some more light on what the government is, is dealing with in trying to get this evacuation plan together to respond to your colleagues who say you're not giving enough information or you're not moving quickly enough? I think the most dangerous thing right now would be to pull a dusty old plan out of a drawer and attempt to, to do a, a pro forma response. This is a situation that is constantly changing. On Monday we had two Canadians seeking consular assistance, today we have 196. We're extremely aware that the situation is fluid. Uh, the minister has made arrangements for a chartered airplane. Uh, that contract has been uh, uh, let, and we now have a, a plane at our disposal. We have conversations going on with Chinese officials. The minister will be speaking to his counterpart tonight uh, in China to ensure that we find the best diplomatic solution. Uh, China has a responsibility to keep a, their citizens safe and their residents safe, as well as to stop the spread of the virus. Canada has a responsibility to keep all our citizens safe, including those who are abroad and those who are at home. And so when you play those off, you want to make sure that if we're bringing people home to Canada, it is the best for their health and we don't endanger Canadians here. And so this plan, and it's, it's not as though there's no plan, there are several plans, they're in constant flux, and we will come up with the best plan that meets our needs right. as can, a can country you, you, and to make sure we, we keep Canadians healthy. Do you know if this aircraft and crew that's at the ready, is that is that a, is that a Canadian aircraft and crew or, or is it a foreign crew and does that complicate things? Uh, I don't know that. I, I've spoken to the minister um, uh, very shortly after he had uh, made the arrangements. This is all I was told. What this okay. uh, airplane was one that was used to doing these kinds of evacuations and the crew was experienced at this kind of work. But it's not Canadian, is it? I, I don't okay. know. It, it, just quickly, one final thing to you at this in, the, in this go-around. Is there a concern that China may not allow those Canadians to leave 
especially in light of the global emergency declaration from the WHO just a few hours ago, which, which does in some part call for tighter restrictions or may result in tighter restrictions on cross-border travel. We will be compliant with whatever WHO is suggesting is best for the health of, of, of people. Uh, the WHO, elevating this to, to the crisis that they are now saying it is, is actually designed to help countries that don't have safeguards right. in place like Canada does. We will follow those guidelines. I can't predict whether or not it's harder or easier for China to, to do this. What we have experienced is no technical difficulties with China. What they are trying to do is find a way through this so that both countries okay. protect our citizens and stop the spread of the virus. Stephanie That's Cousy, our goal. There are lots of questions as well about what to do with the Canadians if and when they're repatriated from Canada, from China. Should they be placed in quarantine? Because the minister said today none of that's been decided yet. Well, again, this is the concern is that we are not hearing um, any type of a plan with any type of uh, logistics um, whatsoever. And this is after repeated questions about uh, even the individuals who will be allowed on the flight back to Canada. And the, our question included um, concerns as to um, permanent residents. Will these individuals uh, be allowed on the flight, um, unaccompanied minors? I mean, we're not getting any specifics at all uh, in regards to um, the plan. So, you know, I think we're, we're just, as I said, we're just hearing um, platitudes about concerns for the Canadians, both in China as well as um, the health and safety of those um, Canadians here. And we're, we're getting updates as to the situation, but those are available um, through the media. What we want to see uh, is a plan of action. And it is up to the government to ensure that these are not, in fact, dusty plans um, hidden away in drawers. They are, the government is accountable to make sure that these plans are updated on an annual basis as they should be. So if they are not communicating anything to us um, in the House of Commons in response to our questions, uh, it leads us to believe that, um, that that they don't know what they're doing and that they uh, don't have okay. control of the situation. I'll come back here. to Mr. Oliphant. Just quickly on this, Mr. Bla Mr. Blakey, do you believe those Canadians when they do return, if and when they do return, and it's a, we, we think it's a when, uh, should they be quarantined when they get back to Canada? Well, I mean, this is these are the kinds of things that we would like to know from the government, frankly, and 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 I think uh, and I think it's incumbent upon the government to be able to provide a a, a plan for that that's based on the best science and evidence. I, I think the the problem is is that the longer that the government doesn't goes without presenting a plan, the more speculative people are going to get about uh, coming up with uh, ideas about what what we should or shouldn't do. This should be a conversation that's grounded in evidence. It should be a conversation that's led by the government with an open and transparent plan. That's where we want to be. So we'd like to be commenting on the government's plan in light of evidence that they're talking about. And we can't get there uh, if the government isn't releasing that information. The only real change in information that we know now is that the government has a plane. Okay. We know a lot more details about the virus uh, now that we're three or four days in than we do about the government's plan on how to deal right. with it. Mr. Oliphant, let me, well, uh, let me have your response. And those go hand in hand. We're an evidence-based government, and it's not good enough to have a plan that's updated yearly. We have a plan that's being updated hourly. This is, a, this is a, a viral situation in every sense of that word. It's a situation where we're having to deal with a, a different country. We're having to deal with several unknowns that we are, we are gradually getting information for, but we will not make mistakes. Overall, do no harm. 
This government will follow evidence-based decision-making. We're working with our like-minded partners. We have conversations going on with other countries that are in a very similar situation. We're learning from them, but we're not going to make a plan. We're making plans for every possible contingency that's happening. That's the responsibility of good okay. government uh, to right. do it. To hear what some of that planning is. I mean, so I, all that planning I, can't just be happening. Like, it's a fluid situation. We get that. But Canadians need some sense of where their government is headed. Uh, particularly people who have family members would like to know like, when that and plane is going to land, whether their family members are going to be put in quarantine either in China or on this end when okay. they get back. And our consular and officials are in constant contact with those people. I'm sure you'll have... They're you'll, not you'll, in constant contact with everybody. They are in constant we'll contact with officials. We'll have questions and we'll be looking for answers and uh, uh, this story will uh, continue, I'm sure. We'll have lots to follow in the days ahead. But thank you all for your time tonight. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Eve T. Bergen is a political science professor at the University of British Columbia and executive director of the UBC China Council. He joins me now from Vancouver to talk about the latest developments in Canada's response to the coronavirus outbreak. Professor uh, T. Bergen, uh, thanks for making time to speak with me today. Uh, the World Health Organization's now declared uh, this outbreak a global health emergency. What do you think are the challenges facing the Canadian government now in trying to get approval from the Chinese for the evacuation of those nearly 200 Canadians who want to be uh, taken back to Canada? Um, I mean, I expect that it's, that it's going to be all the usual technical administrative loopholes with the various uh, bureaucracies, but uh, Canada is not the first, right? They have let the U.S. evacuate, they've let Japan evacuate first, and then uh, the Australians and Europeans. So at this point, the Chinese side should have a routine. Uh, so I, I expect that it's going to be okay, right? It's just a matter of working and doing the arrangements. Apparently, they have delayed. You know, I, I've seen the reports for the Japanese or the uh, Europeans. There was a delay by a day, but eventually they got through. So Right. I mean, uh, and, and some of the suggestion is we're hearing that uh, the Chinese are very sensitive to images of foreigners trying to flee the country because of this outbreak. How much do you think that plays into this whole uh I, I guess, delay, if I can put it that way, or the process of trying to get approval to move these Canadians? Um, partly only, because apparently we don't see too many comments on social media. I've been trying to scan the Chinese social media, also the uh, Chinese-Canadian uh, medias, which report some of the uh, reports from China, and we don't see too much, right? It's very quiet uh, on this front. They're really more focused on what's happening to them. Uh, and... Um, so I expect it's manageable, but they always care about, of course, face, about doing it proper. They probably want to demonstrate that they are forthcoming, they're helpful, they are doing uh, out of uh, good mercy. And meanwhile, of course, uh, the countries are respecting rules and doing everything properly. So there's probably an emphasis on process, but so far we don't see a crisis around the evacuation of foreigners. Right. Have you seen some movement in uh, in the way China has has dealt with this. And, and I, say, I ask you that because uh, the World Health Organization today praised China for its transparency and its efforts to control the outbreak, which is a marked departure from the way it responded to the SARS outbreak. Uh, what do you think of China's handling of this situation? Does it demonstrate a change for you? Uh, yes. So there's three steps in what happened. There is December, where the virus was discovered. Then there is January, when it was in Wuhan. And then there's the last phase, the last 10 days. On the first phase, China did very well. That is, they, uh, they were forthcoming that there was a new uh, virus. They coded it. 
They got the, the sequence, the genetic sequencing, and they shared it within two weeks of the very first uh, outbreak in December. And so worldwide, everybody has had access to that sequence. That's why they have been testing developed around the world. We have a test everywhere, including Canada. Uh, the second phase was within Wuhan, and there it was slow, right? They didn't uh, take uh, as seriously the crisis as it should have been taken. Uh, there was, uh, you know, report of doctors or ambulance doctors who uh, we were scared by what was happening. We thought it was a SARS-like process, and they were shut down. Uh, a couple of doctors were arrested, uh, and we know now the Supreme Court in uh, of China uh, just uh, announced that the people, the doctors who had been arrested by the police, were wrongly arrested, and they blamed the police, and they ordered to free those people. Uh, so that was in the second phase. Some mistakes there. Third phase in the last 10 days, when it became uh, an issue of the central government, they shut down the city of Wuhan and other cities, 50 million people, uh, and they are much more forthcoming about the number of, uh, of sick people, uh, and they are letting foreign countries come in and evacuate their foreigners. There is also talk that they will let the CDC uh, of the U.S. Uh, uh, and other experts from other countries come in. We don't see them on the ground yet, but if they let them come in, that's a major departure as well. Okay. Um, do you? Let me ask you. Do you, do you think there's? A, we've seen. I mean, Canada talks. The Canadian government, the Prime Minister, and various ministers are talking about the challenges and the protocols of trying to get these Canadians out, and yet. Some of the critics here are saying, look, how, how come the Americans have got them out? How come the Europeans have got them out? How come the Japanese are getting them out? And, and wondering whether, you know, the deteriorated diplomatic relationship between Canada and China is at play at all here. What do you think of that? Is it playing any role in Canada's ability to get those Canadians out? I, so it's too early to tell. Uh, there's no sign of that. I, I don't think so. You know, in the end, if the Canadians get out uh, tomorrow instead of yesterday, or, the difference is not big. Uh, I Also, uh, there are a lot of Chinese Canadians who are in China and quite a bit in, uh, in Wuhan, and apparently collecting, you know, in a way, the numbers could be bigger. Uh, because we have such a large population going between the two sides, we need Chinese Canadians. And getting the okay from them could have taken time as well. Apparently, a lot of them uh, prefer to sit down, uh, you know, wait the crisis out in China. Uh, others want to go out. And so to collect all that information when you have a bigger number could be a technical issue. But we'll see, right? If uh, Canada gets uh, the authorizations quickly and can evacuate everyone uh, rapidly, then uh, we will say that there was no major impact. My guess is, you know, the, the crisis of the relationship doesn't affect that level normally. Uh, there is no, that would be very petty. Uh, I, I don't expect to, but the, the proof will be, uh, you know, what happens, right? Okay, we'll let's see. finish quickly on this if I can. What, what kind of economic impact could this outbreak have, not just on the Canadian economy, but on the global economy, if it persists for some time? Uh, yeah, it's going to be a big impact in the short term, and then it's a matter of how long it lasts, right? We know that people, people have estimated that the Chinese GDP will be hit more than 1%, you know, you know out of a 6% annual growth, maybe 1% down, or 1.2, 1.3, uh, and it's reverberating across all the supply chains, because we know uh, some of the supply chains, uh, you know, affected in the rest of Asia. And eventually, in the rest of the world, will be uh, will be affected because production is stopping in many mm -hmm. places. Uh, and then, of course, tourism is falling apart. Uh, you know, international connections are falling apart. Uh, many many flights are cancelled now between China and the rest of the world. So there is an impact. 
But the SARS example uh, tell us that you know eventually there was a bounce back. So uh, so far the best estimation will be a SARS-like phenomenon with a sharp cut and then eventually a bouncing back, but still a loss for the year. All right, Professor Eve Tubergen uh, joining us from Vancouver this evening. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Pleasure being here. Well, the Trudeau government says it is one step closer now to bringing in its promised ban on single-use plastics after receiving a scientific review. In a moment, we'll look at that review and the government's response. But first, some background on the government's plan to curb plastic pollution. Last summer, the Trudeau government announced it intended to ban all single-use plastics as early as 2021. Oxo-degradable plastics, branded as plastic-degradable cutlery or plastic-degradable bags, among other products, are expected to be included in the ban. These products don't biodegrade, but instead break into smaller pieces, releasing microplastics into the world. Polystyrene, which is similar to white styrofoam, is expected to be included as well. Although specific details have yet to be released, single-use plastics such as straws, water bottles, plastic bags, cutlery, stir sticks, and fast food containers are expected to fall under this ban. This will affect industries such as grocery stores, fast food chains, and coffee shops. Canadians throw away an estimated 34 million plastic bags each day. Most end up in landfills. About one-third of all plastics in Canada are single-use products or packaging. Canadians are expected to throw out $11 billion in plastic products by 2030 if current trends continue. In 2018, at the G7, Canada launched the Ocean Plastics Charter and pledged that all plastic products would be reused, recycled or burned to produce energy by 2040. 87% of Canada's plastic waste ends up in landfills, with only 9% being recycled. Canadians produce 3.2 million tonnes of plastic waste each year, the equivalent of over 20,000 blue whales. Well, as part of the government's plan, uh, Environment Canada and Health Canada both released their review today of the scientific studies of plastic pollution. CPAC's Martin Stringer joins me now to look at what the government scientists are saying and how that's affecting the government's promised ban on single-use plastics. Martin, good to see you. So what did the long-awaited review have to say today? Well, Peter, uh, the Canadian government basically stresses the fact that this is really the first ever international review of all of the existing science on the effects of plastic pollution. It confirmed that plastic pollution is everywhere, in landfills, in our rivers, lakes and oceans, and even in particles in the air. The science shows that macroplastics, those are big plastics such as plastic straws and bags, plastic rings for cans, cause harm to animals and the environment. The report also finds that microplastics, now those are small particles from the breakdown of plastics, harm wildlife life and the environment and the report calls for more study of the effects of microplastics Peter on human health. So how does this report Martin uh uh, fit into the government's plan to ban single-use plastics? Well, with the release of this report, it had Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson saying that the government is now moving ahead, full steam ahead, on its regulations for 2021. We will have the science report out for, uh, for commentary for uh, the next 60 days, but this was a peer-reviewed report that went through a number of different steps. Um, we will then uh, be uh, developing the list of products to be banned, uh, and the intention is that that ban will be in place uh, in 2021. 
All right, Martin, the, the other question is which single-use plastics are we talking about here? Are we getting any closer to, to having a list mm -hmm. uh, from the government of which products will be banned? We don't have a yes, uh, list yet, but we do know that the government has talked about banning plastic products for which there are already existing biodegradable replacements, and they've mentioned, for example, plastic cups, plates, and cutlery, and especially styrofoam products. Here's the minister with more. Uh, there was discussion around uh, plastic bags, for sure, uh, and uh, things like straws. Those are good examples. We will be going through a process to identify others that are the most harmful in the environment, where alternatives do exist to usage. But as I say, this is part of a much broader, more comprehensive approach to uh, dealing with plastics in the environment. The ban on single-use plastics, on harmful single-use plastics, is part of it, but so are things like extended producer responsibility, uh, putting in place content requirements for recycled products, um, and, uh, and so that is something that we are going to be working on with the provinces and territories going forward. All right, so that's the, what the government has to say about it today. What are we hearing from opposition parties? Well, it depends on which opposition party you hear from. Uh, today, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh made a point of coming out to scrums, and he says he welcomes a scientific report. He welcomes the government's general principles as they're, they're moving ahead, but he says they should be moving ahead faster and not taking a year to, for consultations and to bring in regulations in 2021. Now, we need to start seeing some steps to, to get this in place right away. Uh, we know for certain there's not further studies that need to be done. We need to see some action, some concrete actions that are actually moving forward the goal of immediately ending single-use plastics. Now, on the other side of the political spectrum, Conservative environment critic Carrie Lynn Finley says her party is concerned, though, about simply banning these products without enhancing Canada's recycling capacity. Now, in terms of the environmental groups, what we are hearing from the major groups, such as uh, Greenpeace, is that they are welcoming the scientific report, they're welcoming the government's overall direction that it's heading in, but they're saying that the government won't be, will only be scratching the surface if it doesn't approach the biggest part of the problem, which it says is excessive plastic packaging. All right, uh, Martin Stringer, thank you. You're welcome. Well, the federal government is promising legislation by the end of February to expand the rules for medically assisted death in this country. Almost 300,000 Canadians weighed in with their opinions during a two-week online consultation process that ended this week. This fall, a Quebec court ruled that parts of the federal and Quebec laws on assisted death are unconstitutional because they're too restrictive. The government has until March 11th to make amendments. Well, what the court has said was the, the end of the, the, the reasonable foreseeability of natural death criterion was too narrow in the federal case. Uh, in Quebec's case, the end of same similar analogous point, the end of life regime was too narrow. So we have to respond to that court decision by, by opening up uh, the law to the possibility that there may be some cases uh, in which uh, the person isn't uh, near the end of his or her life. So that's what the government has to address. Some 7,000 Canadians have chosen medically assisted death since it was first offered three years ago. Now the government faces that challenge. How to open up the option of a medically assisted death to Canadians who may not be facing an imminent death, but at the same time ensuring there are protections for those Canadians who feel they could be pressured into accepting an early death. Well, the government is getting some advice today in a new report from the Institute for Research on Public Policy. The authors say amendments to the existing legislation should open up assisted death to some Canadians with mental disorders. The lead author of the new report is Jocelyn Downey, uh, James S. Palmer Chair in Public Policy and Law at the, at the uh, Shulich School of Law at Dalhousie University in Halifax. She's with me now. Uh, Jocelyn Downey, uh, thanks for taking time to speak with me today. Appreciate it. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. This question of medically assisted death for people with mental illnesses, you know, it's maybe the the biggest challenge for policymakers it is it's being confronted again now as the federal and Quebec governments consider how to respect this Quebec court decision. Why would they be wrong to hold the position that if a person's only underlying medical condition is a mental disorder, they should be denied the option of a medically assisted death? Because that position would be premised on false beliefs about persons with mental disorders, uh, false and discriminatory. It would be premised on the notion that people with mental disorders lack decision-making capacity or that we cannot assess their decision-making capacity or a belief that uh, the suffering that comes from a mental disorder is somehow less excruciating than the suffering that comes from physical disorder. Uh, it would be stigmatizing, it would be discriminatory uh, to tell all people with mental disorders that effectively they need to be protected from themselves. Uh, to have a blanket prohibition like that would be uh, unjustifiable. With chronic illnesses and, and physical disabilities, of course, it's easier for medical professionals to assess a request for medically assisted death. Uh, what would have to change to open up the process to people with mental disorders? Well, the first thing I'd say is that it can be easier to assess the prognosis, the diagnosis, and so on, but not always. That doesn't, the complexity of diagnosis and prognosis, predictability of treatment effectiveness, and so on, doesn't map cleanly onto the distinction between physical and mental disorders. Uh, so what we have to recognize is, yes, there's complexity in the context of mental disorders, uh, and we need to respond to that, but let's do that by directly referencing the challenges that you're facing. So in other words, for instance, have a practice standard that says you need to have somebody involved in the assessment of capacity who has expertise relating to that person's condition, for instance, um, rather than saying it, anybody with a mental disorder, you can't walk through this door. So, t t I mean, you, you uh, in your recommendations today, what you propose to the government is, is to um, in the assessment process. Tell me, tell me more about this distinction between whether the decision to request a medically assisted death uh, should be measured as whether or not it's a good one versus the way the decision was reached by the person making the request. Right. We, we don't, with anybody else, decide that you can have access to made only if you're making a decision that the provider agrees with and thinks is a good idea. So we definitely don't want, you don't want the government going down the path of saying, well, for people with mental disorders as their sole underlying medical condition, we're going to assess the quality of their decision. We're going to assess whether it's a good decision or not. What, what we reasonably could do is say, we want to shine a particularly bright light on the process of decision-making because that's where concerns have been raised and some reasonable concerns have been raised about, for instance, has the person had sufficient time to adapt to a new diagnosis? Have they had sufficient time to see whether a potential treatment will actually be effective? Have people reviewed all of the available social supports and services that are available to this person so that their decision, may, their decision will be a truly informed and truly voluntary, capable decision. This, so we look this, at the process. Yeah, okay. Um, and so do we, uh, do we, do we in any way in the, in the current system, do we do that now? I mean, is that the way we evaluate people with a, uh, an underlying, you know, chronic illness or physical condition? You say that can be, that can be traveled to, uh, to dealing with a person with a mental disorder. Yeah, I mean, I think you could take the view 
that this should be handled exactly the same way as we handle all cases of MAID already, which is to follow the path that the judge, the trial judge in the Carter decision, the first decision that gave us medical assistance dying in Canada, and the Truchon decision, which has now taken us to this place of uh, by removing reasonably foreseeable, and say, look, this is happening in the context of a physician or nurse practitioner relationship. We trust doctors and nurse practitioners to do these capacity assessments, to have these conversations with patients about all of their options, all of the supports and services, and so on. Um, and we should do the same here, and there isn't a reason for a distinction between physical and mental. Or you could take the view that we need to shine a light on this to make sure that people are paying particular attention. We're alerting them to it's performing an educative function, for instance, and it's also performing a function of uh, allowing the public to feel confidence in the system is that we know that these additional um, almost they're not prescriptions but additional levels of attention are being paid and that is reassuring to everybody Let, let's let's follow up on that a bit you've touched on it a little bit i want to uh, drill down a bit sure what, what about the argument that that allowing people with a mental disorder uh, to choose assisted death is is really just an indictment of the the lack of proper treatment for mental health, because that's that's what we hear, and that we should focus more on resources. You did touch on that. Um, right. We should focus more on that and, and not give people the state-sanctioned option of ending their lives. Uh, tell me more about that. So it's the same argument that was made in the context of should we have medical assistance in dying at all, where people said, look, we don't have enough palliative care, so we shouldn't allow MAID until everyone has access to quality palliative care. That argument was run in court in the Carter decision, and it failed because the, the appropriate response to it, and I think to the same argument being made here, you should we should only have made for mental disorders once everybody has access to uh, mental health services, is you're creating a penalty for an individual for a systemic problem. And what we've argued is to say, you need to respond to the individual in front of you and allow them to make the choice in their context with everything that they have for themselves, and you simultaneously need to address the systemic problem of inadequate mental health resources and supports and services. So you do the two together. We've seen that in the context of palliative care. We need to see that in the context of mental disorders as well. And, and can this also cover the concerns of, uh, that you know, vulnerable individuals could could be pressured into opting for a medically assisted uh, death. This takes us back, I think, to what you're saying about don't look at the decision, look at the process. So if you can be convinced that yeah. along the way this person has come to this decision, uh, despite all kinds of whatever interventions or, 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 or treatments, uh, they've come to this decision and we have to accept that. Absolutely. And we need to recognize that persons with mental disorders do not lose their rights, nor are they all lacking in decision-making capacity. And so how do we respect that um, at the same time as ensuring that we offer as many alternatives as we can and that we also work very hard to improve the available alternatives so that the next person who comes along may have more services available to them. Now, is this the kind of thing you talk in your recommendations as well about the need to develop um, explicit standards for clinical clinical assessment? Does, does that... Um, is that something that can be, you know, if this, if this is opened up and, and the government's facing this tight deadline we've talked about, if this is opened up in the next couple of months, uh, do you believe these recommendations should be applied immediately or is there, does there need to be some time to develop these 
explicit standards for clinical assessment of people with mental uh, disorders who may want this option of assisted death? I think it all can be brought into force in time for March. And, and I would flag here, everybody's talking about how, how rapid this is. And it, that may be because this is when it really hit the news right. and the consultation went out. But of course, the Trushan decision was back in September. So there's been a lot of time to think about this. And I would also flag that there have been expert reports on this. And the, there have been provincial territorial expert advisory groups and special joint committee of the House and Senate. So this is not new. And there's also experience in other jurisdictions. So the Netherlands and Belgium both allow this. And so we can look to them and see what criteria do they have? What practice standards do they have? What clinical practice guidelines do they have? And import from there. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. So I think what we can do is put in place the whatever changes that the government decides to make to the criminal code. Uh, what other changes the provincial governments decide to make to their funding of their health services and so on, collaboratively, what do they do with um, suicide prevention strategies and so on. But also we can look to the colleges who, who regulate physicians and nurse practitioners and say, put in place a standard. We have actually an example of this already in the MAID context, which was there was a window, if you remember a few years back, where people could, um, it was during an extension of the, um, the, um, Carter decision striking down the law. So you could go to court and seek access to made. Uh, it was this window between a deadline the court gave and right. a deadline and when the federal legislation came in. And the colleges put in place standards to deal with because people could have access to made. So they put in practice standards. And so and they had to do that quickly. So it can be done. And I would also note that practice standards are much more easily adjusted than something that's in the criminal code. Colleges are very nimble, much more nimble. And so you can put something in place to um, deal with the situation in the short term. And then over time, no doubt, all of this will be evolving as guidelines develop and practices develop. You know, we have a Canadian Association of MAID Assessors and Providers. They put out guidelines to help practitioners uh, know how right, to deal with right. tricky cases and obvious cases, so it can be done. So it's a we've we've got a legislative deadline approaching, but it's not like uh, in in terms of um, the information that informs how we move forward. Uh, we're not starting at 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 zero here. Absolutely, right. and the other thing to remember is people with mental disorders, as a sole underlying medical condition, have access now under the law. Right, they're not precluded. Mm. So they were, they, they were in effect kept out most of them because of reasonably foreseeable, but it was possible. And so, and people with mental disorders, of course, with, for instance, also cancer, um, other kinds of conditions, they're already going through the system. The, the assessors and providers are already dealing with people who bring the complexity of mental disorder into the clinical encounter. And you have to figure out what's the capacity, for instance, in that context just because they have reasonably foreseeable was already covered off by say their cancer or they, their ALS. So again, this is not entirely new terrain for clinicians. All right, Jocelyn Downey, uh, thank you for your perspective tonight. Good to talk to you and we'll talk again. Absolutely, thanks, bye. Well, it's time now to bring in our panel of party commentators for their wisdom and well, their wit too, I suppose. With me tonight, uh, Jeff Turner, who's a liberal commentator. Tim Powers is a conservative commentator. And Robin McLaughlin is an NDP commentator. Good to see you all. Uh, Fast-moving developments here on the, on the coronavirus story, um, Jeff, and, and how the government's dealing 
uh, with this uh, situation, uh, World Health Organization today declaring it a global emergency now. Uh, and, you know, is there more the government could be doing on this? It's starting to get some criticism now for, you know, trying to get the Canadians out of China and why that's taking so long and some of the screening issues. Uh, if you could give them any advice, what would it be, or just stay the course? Well, it's a fast-moving problem. I think they've mm -hmm. been handling it competently uh, since uh, it became a, a major issue, I think less than a week ago, mm -hmm. really, in terms of an international issue. Um, I think the flow of information coming out of China is slower than it may be elsewhere, and that's causing complications. And then having to be able to uh, reach out to those Canadians who are affected in-country and who may wish to have consular assistance or wish to be evacuated from the country, uh, how you deal with that is obviously the next challenge. They've secured a plane to be able to pull people back who want to come, but that opens up a whole other series of questions around quarantining or other uh, other tests to make sure people are healthy before they get on that plane, uh, and what happens to them when they get back to Canadian soil. We have, mm. we have three cases confirmed today in Canada, and a plane coming back presents risks, but I'm sure the government is working very diligently to manage those risks. One of the, and you've all got some experience in crisis communication, and I guess one of the challenges in crisis communication, Tim, is to try and stay ahead of the story, and, but a story like this is hard to stay ahead of. Right? Well, but, but also be responsible in the information you provide, and in fairness to the government, I think they're doing okay. Uh, the, the one area where maybe they need to address is am I at risk it's a question you keep hearing it was a discussion at our lunchroom table today people are trying to figure out as emergencies get called am I personally in my space at risk what do I need to do and I don't know if there's an easy and clear answer to that so I think more focus on addressing that particular personal anxiety. Look, I've seen uh, the, the health minister out there, Minister Haidu, I've heard mm -hmm, yep. the health uh, officials in Ontario come forward. They're, they're competent in what they're saying it, and that they seem to be fully aware and, and, and on top of things. So it, it's hard to know how this is going right now, other than that, I feel they're doing okay. Yeah, so from a crisis communication standpoint, uh, generally the, the principles are to be informative, authentic, uh, and to um, be available, uh, so transparent. Uh, the challenge with this type of a crisis is you don't know where this is going to end up. Mm -hmm. And what we would always tell a, a client dealing with crisis communication is figure out where it's going to end and get there first. Right. So here you can't. So what you can do, though, is to be forthright, to share information uh, in a responsible manner, uh, and to make sure that you're answering the questions that, as Tim touched on, are happening around the kitchen table, uh, as well as that are coming from the media. Uh, and I think so far, I mean, it's hard to judge in a situation like this. I've seen nothing the government's done that hasn't been uh, in line with that. Uh, the other thing, too, is Canada has experience with this from the mm -hmm. SARS crisis uh, back in 2006, I believe. Mm -hmm. So to demonstrate that we've learned from the lessons uh, of that, and I think in particular in Toronto, we're seeing that, Toronto Public Health uh, and the medical experts leading the way, and, and not just um, reassuring and providing information, but saying these are the systems we've put in place uh, and why we're in a different situation now than we were back in 2006. Okay. Um, let's move on from that. Let's talk about the uh, conservative leadership race. Tim, let me, let me start with you here. I think what's you know been really interesting to me in the last little while is to a couple of things. Who's decided not to run? Uh, who's still being rumored about running? And I guess I, I guess it leads me to ask this question. I mean, there was a big push to get rid of Andrew Scheer, and now nobody's particularly. There's a lot of dissatisfaction <laughs> with who wants I can to speak replace to that him. Experience before. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I guess what's well, What's I that all about? A, I think there's a bigger conversation, Peter, to be had that we're seeing play out in the conservative leadership, but it's playing itself out in other political parties about who wants to lead and what are you what are you trading off to lead? I mean, you look at Mr. Sheree, uh, Rana, Pierre Polyev, all very capable in different ways. You can fight about their politics. All all said no when at least 
all three of them were seriously considering it. Um, clearly, for different reasons, uh, they didn't. Yeah, didn't Nick, want I mean that's important, right? Some of them are they 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 don't want to get back into that political. Well, and I think all, the re all of the some reasons of them were legitimate. And I think there's a win. bigger statement about what is this job that I'm taking on. But that's a longer conversation for today. As it relates to the current race, look, I I, I think in Mr. O'Toole and 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 Peter McKay and Marilyn Gladu, you have uh, you have one clear tier one candidate. Peter McKay is a well-known quantity. Uh, Aaron O'Toole finished third the last time he's an interesting quantity uh, quantity uh, Marilyn Gladu and and there's some others that are not being disrespectful by not naming them I just don't remember their names at the moment which maybe tells you uh, but it's uh, I, I think the fee may be an issue which isn't a bad thing either I think the intent of putting it at three hundred thousand dollars was uh, to make sure there weren't pretenders in. So we have some candidates who may be classified as pretenders, but do they hang on until till the end of March? It isn't the race the Conservatives right. want at the moment, but I think it will be judged to pick up on a point Robin made on what the outcome looks like. If Peter McKay wins and he's in there, I, I think generally people will be pleased with that in con Conservative Party. Jeff, what do you think watching this from the sidelines? Well, much like Tim, I mean, who, who's been getting out has been the story in the last week and a half because those big uh, common names, common household names have all opted not to enter with the exception of Mr. McKay. And we are all waiting to see if there is a, a name no left one. that can wade back into Tony this Tony Clement out here. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, they keep yeah. floating John Baird's name. but Yeah, and and, and, uh, and and John Baird's name has been in a lot of places in the last few weeks, hasn't it? As the, the chair of Pierre Polyev's uh, boarded campaign, as the, the uh, simultaneously providing advice to the party on where they may have gone wrong in the last election. So he seems to be a, a name that everybody's using in the last few weeks. Um, but I think uh, the, the Conservatives have an age-old problem, and, and many political parties do sometimes, which is what does it take to win the party leadership? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what does it take to win a general the election? The country, the mood of the people. And those two things, I think, the further you get, as a liberal, I'll say, the further you get down the ideological <laughs> spectrum of a party on, the, on either end of those spectrums, the, the harder it is to convince the sort of bedrock members of those movements that to move more to the middle. Right. Whereas the liberal, I'd say we yeah. often capture the whole right. middle and we find the middle even better. Rob, what are your thoughts on, on what yeah, you're seeing here? I'd pick up where, where Jeff was there because regardless of what leadership it is, you see this in the United States during the primary season, you've got to then f be able to pivot uh, to win the country. And the challenge for the Conservatives' leadership last time was interesting because it was a really narrow uh, battle there mm -hmm. with Andrew Scheer just winning on the last ballot. The only ballot he led on was the last mm -hmm. ballot. Uh, and then there wasn't much of a pivot to win the country. And we saw that uh, in the election. In fact, the only kind of excitement of wind in their sails going into the election was the challenges the Liberal government were facing as a result of SNC-Lavalin. Where I think the challenge for the, the Conservatives are now is having an actual real leadership race, first of all. Um, if Peter McKay runs away with this, whether it's because of the rules or because not enough people throw their hat in, um, will he have allowed himself enough room to pivot uh, to win the country? Because we saw already all candidates have now said they're against carbon pricing. They're going to get rid of the carbon tax. Uh, it wasn't just Andrew Scheer's opposition to same-sex marriage and uh, kind of his social conservative values that I think hurt them. It was also the fact that they weren't speaking the language of uh, many uh, voters in Ontario and Quebec in the right. East around the environment and, and that it's the number one issue for many most Canadians. Robin had a key point. They've all jumped on the fact that they're going to get rid of Justin Trudeau's carbon tax and I think that that, uh, that that's different than being for some form of carbon pricing but I agree with Robin they're not going to get to that until after they get through the leadership the other thing that I think could actually happen here Peter is we get to March 26th and March 27th the day you got to put that other two hundred thousand right. dollars down and people look and say you know what uh, I'm not really that close to it or I have it but I'm not going to win so why am I going to put it down this thing could be over in March, that is both 
problematic and potentially positive because it gives Peter McKay a longer window. So you're saying, window a, you're saying a, a McKay coronation if, if it's going to be anybody. Yeah, look, if Peter if it's Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole and Marilyn Gladue and nobody else has entered the race and it looks, the other candidates look and see that, you know, I've got to spend another $200,000 to win and they haven't been able to raise that money, this thing may be over in March and then a quicker pivot to other issues can happen. Mm. Good. My only other thought about this pivoting business and, and coming out of the Ontario uh, political world and watching Patrick Brown win the leadership using a very yeah. lot of social conservative values, anti-carbon tax uh, language, even before that was cool. And, and, and selling a pile of memberships. And well, let's be clear. Oh, I mean, absolutely. You know, yeah. there, it, there's different though. There, yeah, yeah, but but you there's you know selling. winning votes in the country <laughs> is different than winning a, a leadership because yeah, it's all about getting members to vote for you. Sign up a bunch of members and get them to vote. Right. My my, my doe-eyed wish though is perhaps maybe in 21st century politics we stop to the point where you win a leadership by promising all including the the u.s primary system you you win a leadership by promising a bunch of stuff you never intend to do uh and then when you actually have to face the regular people to vote for you you pivot to what is what we can all agree probably a more sensible platform and so i, I just i, I kind of wish that hopefully we don't see that in this conservative race um maybe i wish as a liberal that we see it because it will cause a further <laughs> schism if they do that pivot after the fact uh, but just as a citizen i would love to see us move to a place where leaders aren't just by rigor extend mm -hmm. you know expected to uh, to to take certain positions and then just abandon them when it when it becomes convenient. And let me just finish on on this before we move on to a final subject. Is that this this battle? Uh, it intrigues me a bit, and it's kind of in all parties. But where you know, how do you? It's one thing to win a leadership, but again, how do you win the country? And the way you win the country is by expanding the base mm -hmm. of your yeah. supporters at election time, right? And so there's this debate that I'm hearing in the Conservative Party now about, well, is it a red Tory or I'm a true blue Tory and I'm going to cons consolidate the base and expand the base. But to win, don't Conservatives actually need to go after that 10 or 12% of people who didn't vote for them? Uh, you know, I mean, they won the popular vote, but you need to make big inroads around urban centres and particularly yep. around Toronto. And so for Conservatives, are, are they thinking to themselves, I want a guy who's going to drive the base and the things I really believe, or is it a guy who's going to go get those people, stick to Conservative policies and win those people who have voted Conservative in the past and are prepared to again, but they're typically somewhere left to center. With the Stephen Harper model, and this is the only place where I believe it has a parallel here, is Stephen Harper's success was he built a coalition. I think Conservatives need to build a new coalition and different topologies are at play if they want to win the country yes there needs to be that urban connection it's the, the, you go back to the last leadership race and the disconnect with millennial voters and now zillennial voters is pretty pronounced as we saw in the last uh, campaign so it, it's wonderful to stick with older voters uh, oh. guess what they're also dying uh, and uh, not to scare anybody watching tonight of course uh, that this is their last night on earth but uh, but uh, but the coalition needs to be about broadening thank god he's not the health minister during this crisis. Thank God he's not writing for the party leadership. Yeah. What I, Vote for I, me now while you can. Yeah, exactly. You know, I see lots of grandmothers and grandfathers in climate change protests, just for the record. I'm glad Tim juxtapositioned how Harper did it to how the next leader needs to do it, because I think the Harper model worked in a unique situation. It was very incremental growth to get to that coalition, and it also worked when the Liberal Party was in one of its worst situations, I think, nationally. Uh, now, if you look at the results of the 2015 election, uh, and the and I always bring electoral reform into this, the fact that I think there's a voting po uh, coalition out there, progressives, that whether there's a new electoral system or not, they'll find a way to oppose old guard conservative regressive policies. So what this conservative does is exactly what you've talked about. How do you mirror the mirror marry the conservatives in the West and Alberta and their mm -hmm. fiscal conservatives and their 
anger right now at Ottawa with the people around the 905 and in Quebec yep. who have conservative values. And you can only do that if you reconcile position on the environment uh, and and uh, and same-sex marriage and other uh, equality Quick, issues. Quick final word to you on that and on where you go get these voters. I mean, uh, you're a liberal, but we're talking about conservatives, yeah. but it's the same sort of political science. I mean, I followed uh, Ken Bossenkool, a notable conservative, had a, had a note today, but focused on leadership numbers rather than general numbers. And it was, if you imagine that 10% of conservative members are these social conservatives that we are all talking about, um, but you need to find that 10% of new conservative members to bring you into that other place yeah. in the GTA. He suggests that's just a canceling out, and why would you do that as a way of growing the party as opposed to trying to have both of those camps? I don't think that's possible to have both those camps. But if you if you uh, focus beyond that, I think the point stands that you need to broaden that coalition to win the election, and a leadership contender needs to really, really focus on that. All right, thank you all ahead of time. Thank you. Thank Talking you. again. Sure. That is all for another edition of Primetime Politics here on CPAC. We are the Cable Public Affairs Channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching.